Bad things happen to God's people. That's the title of tonight's message. And I'd like you to pray with me in a prayer that is framed in a hymn in the words of an old hymn. Please bow with me and pray this prayer in your heart. Teach me, O Lord, thy way of truth. And from it I will not depart, that I may steadfastly obey. Give me an understanding heart. Amen. Gail Davis was a widow and member of South Holly Baptist Church in Littleton, Colorado. Carol and I spent the first eight years of our married lives in Colorado, in the Denver area, the first three years going to seminary, and uh, we stayed out there another five years after they let me out. And uh, while we were there, most of our church membership was at South Holly Baptist Church, and that's where we got to know Gail Davis. Now, Gail had... I think three or four sons, one of them by the name of Harold. Harold and his wife, Melody, were missionaries to Bogota, Colombia. They had three daughters, and uh, they felt the call of God on their lives to take the, the gospel to that South American country. They learned a language and made the, the sacrifices that missionaries often have to make in order to live there. It'd be hard to imagine a man, a family like Harold Davis and his family, it'd be hard to imagine them having any real enemies who would be against someone who went about trying to live as Jesus did, doing good and preaching the gospel. Well, evidently, he did have an enemy. Because on March 11th, 1993, Harold Davis was gunned down and shot in his Bogota neighborhood in a mugging. I was looking through my things. I had this notebook that Harold gave me. Uh, I vaguely remembered meeting him. We must have had some type of conversation because he thought that this uh, planner, uh, spiritual life organizer, would be a helpful aid to my Christian walk. And when I look at that and I think of what transpired, it made you wonder. I mean, the need for missionaries is so great. And finding people who are willing to go and stay seems unending. Would God really let a choice servant of his die an unglamorous death like that? I mean, he wasn't being shot because he was a Christian missionary. He wasn't forced to recant his faith in Christ. He was simply mugged, probably for his money. God. 
Wouldn't you protect this man from someone like that, like you protect so many of us and so many other missionaries? What happened? Are you in control or not? What do we do when bad things happen to God's people? And I think we could perhaps um, make that a little bit more personal. Or what happens when God seems to allow bad things to happen to people who faithfully and regularly participate in the life and ministry of Harvest Bible Church? Would he allow a choice servant of his to fall out of a cherished relationship? Would he allow someone who had a, a perfect job opportunity with an opportunity to grow in a good work environment to all, all of a sudden seemingly become a place of torment with unending responsibilities and decisions to be made? where you come home from work and you start to wonder, did my faith even leak out at all in the busyness of what I've been doing? Or what about the denials that come our way? What about the denials that just seem like ordinary entitlements, you know, a, a fruitful and fulfilled family? Maybe a marriage where there's good communication Why would anyone be an enemy of those who participate faithfully in the ministry and life of Harvest Bible Church? Well, whether you realize it or not, you are involved in a cosmic struggle. When you signed up in discipleship to Jesus Christ, you were signing up not to exist on a playground, but on a battleground. You didn't really give much attention to Satan when you walked under his blindness and his control because he had you right where he wanted you. One of the things I can assure you, you start taking Jesus Christ seriously, you'll begin taking Satan seriously. It seems he's right behind you everywhere you turn. Now, I'm not saying he's especially got you marked out. But if you are involved in punching holes in the darkness through gospel work, through prayer, through disciple-making, you can count on it. You are going to be faced with challenges to your faith. Because you're going to learn along the way that it would seem that the God we serve is content to fight what appears to be a losing battle. After all, why would God stand by and let a choice missionary die? And we know that Harold Davis' story isn't unique. He just joins thousands of people who through the, the eras of church history have suffered similar fates. Some of you remember Chet Bitterman. How many of you remember Chet Bitterman? This goes back a ways. Again, a missionary with Wycliffe Bible translators involved in trying to get the language of God's people into, into the tribes down there. Showed up missing. 
eventually found in a, an abandoned bus, shot to death, wrapped up in an American flag. Apparently, they, the guerrillas who, who were responsible for this thought that he was a spy. Bad things happen to God's people. Is there something that can anchor us? Is there something that, a conviction that can hold us and can energize our perseverance and our faithfulness? To where when it, at times when it's just hard to keep believing, we weren't able to. And I suggest that there is such a truth. It's a truth that I think we may even live by. And I think in the back of our minds, we know it's true, but we don't often hear it verbalized. And certainly it's not something we normally rehearse to ourselves. And we find that truth in Revelation chapter 11. I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 11. say, wow, the book of Revelation, are we waiting in deep waters or not? Well, let's read through it, not the book, but chapter 11, and see how you feel. Revelation chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not, for it has, is given unto the Gentiles. In the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut up heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. And have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them, which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud 
enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth of part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Second woe is past. Behold the, behold, the third woe cometh quickly. I submit to you that in that somewhat cryptic passage lies a truth that could be an anchor for your soul as you press on in the darkness of this life because you've entered a cosmic struggle. It's a struggle that began in Genesis between good and evil, between God and Satan. And you become very keenly aware of it the more you get involved in doing God's will. And you're going to need something then to hold you firm. Now, at first glance, you might say, oh, this is revelation. You kind of tune me out now. I'm not going there. Let me just submit to you. All you need tonight to get at the meaning of this is two things. You need to be teachable, and you need to appreciate a good story. A good story that, you know, that's well-written, has rich character development, has uh, turns and twists in it, surprises in it, a climax, and a meaningful resolution. All those elements are here in this story. First, let's look at the setting. In Revelation chapter 11, we're being taken into a future period of time that the Bible calls the tribulation. It's also known as the 70th week of Daniel. We know that the next, uh, the next event on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. The catching away of his bride, as discussed in 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 4. But following that time will be a time where the midnight of sin covers the earth. Darkest hours of human history will be taking place during that time. It's a time when terrible persecution takes place and where a beast arises to the scene. Now, again, you don't have to be a seminary student or a student prophesy to see who the heroes are in this, in this drama, right? So obviously the two witnesses, amazing people, we see them in chapter 3, but before they even show up on a stage, an interesting surprise happens. You wouldn't expect this, but suppose you were to go to the Fulton Opera House or someplace where a, in a theater where a play is going on, and the director takes you by the arm and pulls you into the play and says, okay, just do what we say. You're part of the play now. That's what's happening to John because in verses 1 and 2, he becomes an active player in the drama of which he is viewing. And he's told to take the measuring rod. It's a reed, a common uh, piece of grass that was used for measuring. But he's not supposed to measure for the sake of getting measurements. In Scripture, measurement can also mean uh, measuring out for judgment and claiming in terms of ownership. And so John is commanded is ordered 
to measure the temple of God, the altar and the worshipers there, but they are to exclude the outer court. By temple, he means the inner sanctuary. In a sense, God, through John, is sealing, claiming the faithful worshipers, putting protection on them. How they're protected, I don't know. But at the very beginning of this drama, something very crucial is brought out about God, and that is God is in control. No matter how dark the midnight of sin becomes, the, no matter how much it would seem that God has basically forsaken the planet, he's in control. Because he is here saying, I'm setting a limit on evil and persecution. He is also making a division. The God of popular American culture does not make divisions. There is no such thing as holy and profane for that God. And our, and our culture likes the man upstairs because he is that way. He doesn't make a distinction. Everybody, his practices, everybody's passions are acceptable. After all, he forgives and forgives and forgives. God of the Bible draws a line between the holy and the profane. And so at the very beginning of the drama, we, we realize that God is in control, that he is overseeing everything that is taking place. Then in verse 3, we have these witnesses, interesting people. There are people that have tried to identify who they are, but it really nobody can say so dogmatically. One thing we do know about them is they are exceptionally powerful. They are given power. Uh, powers like Elijah. They can actually devour their adversaries with fire that comes out of their mouth. I take that quite literally. They have the powers of Moses. They're able to strike the earth with any kind of plague as often as they want. Their location for ministry apparently is in the temple. And their primary ministry is to the Jews, warning them of judgment to flee the wrath to come. They're dressed in, ash, uh, in, in uh, sackcloth. You know, Jesus was known not as a man of jokes. He was known as the man of sorrows, wasn't he? Doesn't Jesus say, blessed are they that mourn? Now, I'm not into being a killjoy. There's a sense in which, yes, the Christian life is a party. But there's, a, there's almost, we could say, a tension, isn't there? And sometimes it's, it, we, it's easy to forget, you know what? On this side of the cemetery, and this side of eternity, there's a lot to lament. And these witnesses, by the way they dress, are conveying the message, there is something wrong. There is danger. And I sometimes wonder, is that true of me and my witness? I find it easy to suggest that Jesus can give the person abundant life. That Jesus can bring peace and satisfaction that everyone is longing for. And certainly that is one of the appeals of the gospel, isn't it? Very difficult to insist 
that God is just, that he's holy, that he makes a distinction between the holy and the profane. And one day, there will be a group of people, a big group of people, who will spend their forever in hell. That's hard medicine. That's tough teaching. These prophets are warning of judgment to come. And they're having a very successful ministry. Nobody can stop them. They're invincible. Now imagine you are one of the faithful Jews, or maybe in the tribulation period, you've heard the gospel in that time, and you've come to Christ, and you're really, you're, you are, uh, you're, you're rejoicing in their ministry. They're making, they're giving visibility to the truth. And it seems like in this wicked, wicked society, God has a witness. You would think, who could even bother to come even near devastating them? But this is where the plot thickens and complications arise. Because we read further, after we've read about their supernatural effects that they have, even the effect that they can shut up heaven so that it doesn't rain. Can you imagine living in that kind of torment where there's two men who's keeping the rain from falling, controlling the weather? This is where the villain arises. It says in verse 7, and when they shall have finished their testimony, God is in control. God set the limits to how long they would testify. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will make war against them, overpower them, and kill them. Shocking. Shocking. Why would God let that happen? His two premier prophets who are warning and, and testifying to the truth in the darkest of days allowed to be killed by this beast. Now, this is the first time in the book of Revelation where the beast appears. Later on in, in, in chapters 13 and, and 14 and really up until about 19, you run into him. Apparently, he, he comes off the scene after having pulled off some kind of pseudo-resurrection. It says that the, of the beast that he had a fatal wound. Apparently, he appeared to have died, but the fatal wound had been healed. So in what we could call almost an unholy resurrection, he comes back to life onto the scene. Evidently, he was a man of great charm and charisma, able to for a while at least, to settle the Israeli-Arab tensions in the Middle East, brings peace to the earth. I mean, you think of even the climate of our world, moving toward more of the idea, you know, it would really be great if we could have a, a world leader who could just unify the kindreds of men. And the beast fits the bill. I've heard it said that the, the beast, uh, one preacher said, He's kind of, his career as the personification of sin actually 
illustrates the reverse of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, I don't know how many of you saw Beauty and the Beast. Uh, I saw the cartoon version. Okay, that's about all I can handle. Um, the early one, okay? But in that one, you have this ugly beast that is finally made charming by beauty. The beast of Scripture comes to us on the pages of Scripture. We'll come on to see actually in the world as one who can solve the problems. And like sin, sin promises to solve our problems, doesn't it? Sin does not come with a ball and chain, does it? Sin doesn't knock at our door and say, here's the handcuffs, I want to cart you off. The beastly nature of sin does not show up until we've embraced it and welcomed it and pledged our allegiance to it. If you're fighting sin, you may need to just repeat that to yourself. It looks charming. It looks enticing. It makes promises. But in the end, its beastly nature will appear. But the man of sin, the Antichrist, the beast, Paul talks about him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He comes on the scene, probably in the early days of the tribulation, wages his forces against these prophets. Why? They stand in the way of the temple. From my understanding, at the midway point of this seven-year uh, period, he wants to set up the image of himself. And what Daniel referred to the, as the abomination that, abomination that causes desolation. He craves the worship of God. And why wouldn't he? He's energized by Satan. And those prophets stand in the way. Finally, they're out of his way. And then, to make the, the action even darker, notice was it, what, how, how the story proceeds in verse 8, and 9, and 10. The, uh, their bodies are laid out. They're not even buried. That was a way of showing contempt of dishonor letting those bodies just rot out in the street. And then, if that were not enough, there is a Christmas in July sort of taking place. People from all kinds of ethnic groups from around the world showing you how powerful this man was are celebrating. Can you imagine being one of the faithful Jews or one of the people that became Christians at this time? The witnesses are dead. The world is rejoicing. And you're beginning to wonder, is God in control or not? Can things get any worse than this? All hope seems to be gone. That's a place I can imagine where Melody Davis came to when her husband was shot. It's a place that we sometimes come to when a relationship that we cherish sours or breaks up. Or a, or a cherished opportunity that's set before us 
melted away. Sometimes it happens in our struggle against sin, doesn't it? How many of you have ever fallen into the same sin over and over, and you're finally down on the ground, and it's like, I'm not getting up. What's the sense of getting up? It's better just to be on the floor rather than get up and get knocked down again. Have you ever come to that place in your struggle against sin where it's just like, Am I going to have to do this the rest of my life? And am I going to be able to carry, am I going to get some sustained victory? Evil can seem so strong, so unreasonable in the things that can take place. But here's where another surprising twist in the plot takes place. In verse 11, God, a breath of life from God, where a spirit of life from God enters into them, these prophets, and they come to life. I mean, that is somewhat bizarre. And they stand on their feet. I can almost imagine the crowd gathered around looking. Because while they were dead, the beast demonstrated that he's worthy of worship, he's in control. No one can oppose him. He has the final word. Just like our sin tells us sometimes. Get down and stay down. Just like the twists and turns in our lives may suggest to us. But God raises them up. They stand on their feet. The people around them are engulfed in fear. Then these witnesses hear a voice from heaven saying, come up hither. And so not only are they, we could say, resurrected, they're, in a sense, raptured. You know, sometimes people look at you sideways when you talk about the rapture, even Christians. But you know, there's different raptures in the Bible. You got Elijah being raptured up. Maybe Enoch was raptured up. We know he was and he was not. And, you know, I mean, I, I get the idea that his body and himself is there, and then his body and himself was not there. Elijah was raptured up. These two witnesses are raptured up. I mean, the whole idea of a being caught away shouldn't sound too strange. And they're taken into heaven. The climax. God vindicates his servants. God is a God of vindication. In Revelation chapter 3, I'm reminded of the passage where uh, Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, he said, um, uh, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down before you and acknowledge that I have loved you. God vindicates his people. And then after it's demonstrated that they are on the side of God and that God's power is greater. Some other amazing signs take place in verse 13. An earthquake takes place and a tenth of the city is destroyed. 7,000 people are killed in the earthquake and the survivors are terrified. 
And it says they give glory to the God of heaven. I'm not so sure it's glory to the God of heaven willingly. I mean, lovingly and with cherished hearts. Maybe, but I don't think so. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. And they're not all going to do it willingly. Out of great love and adoration for what Jesus Christ has done. The Lord of Sabaoth, the, the sovereign despot of the universe, has spoken, has acted. And then we come to the resolution. You know, there's five elements in the story, right? You've got the setting. You have the exposition with the setting and the characters. We've got, we go on there. We've got the rising action, conflict, the climax. These, are, these, these witnesses are raised up. Now the falling action, we see that uh, they're vindicated. Earthquakes are taking place. What is the resolution? Well, if you read down further in chapter 11, you realize a little later on there in chapter 11, voices in heaven testifying. The 24 elders testifying. Now have come the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Speaking about the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Reminds you of Handel's Messiah, doesn't it? It ought to remind you of what the scripture says. This points to the ultimate triumph of good. What is the lesson? What is the moral of this story? I think Haddon Robinson probably put it the best way I've heard it, and that is good wins no ultimate victory except out of the grave of apparent defeat. Good wins no ultimate victory except out of the grave of apparent defeat. It is a principle that really runs through the Bible. In the Old Testament, think of Saul and David. There came a time in David's life when he was just going to give up. He thought, you know, one of these days Saul is going to kill me. But even in what looked like just a, a lose-lose situation, David comes to the throne. We can see this happening on the personal level of our lives. Sometimes it's through the failures and the setbacks that we come to trust in God more implicitly, more explicitly, become more aware of our weakness and our need to trust. Andy Stein was sharing with me, did you ever think that constantly seeing your need to pray and to cry out to God for help and deliverance is a gift of God in itself? That's a sign of health, by the way. It's a sign of disease when you're not doing that. Because things can get pretty dark, even on the personal level, in which we can see maybe perhaps foretaste of this ultimate good rising up out of what seems to be defeat. And believe me, doesn't it look that way out in society? Aren't our values kicked around, God's values kicked around, laughed at? Isn't what is right called wrong and wrong called right? You really think it's going to get better? You're going to need to go into the future armed with the truth. Golden Age Harvester, you look at your world and you, you feel sorry for the younger generation coming up, don't you? 
And sometimes it's easy as, a, as an older person, and I know this because I spend a lot of times in nursing homes and around more mature people. There's a, there's a tendency to want to just dwell in the darkness. Say, yeah, it's just really getting bad out there. Did you hear what they said on CNN? Did you hear what they said? Did you, did you hear about that court case? And on and on. You want to say, hey, did you know that God writes the final chapter? Did you know that out of the grave of apparent defeat, ultimate good rises in triumphs? That bedrock truth can help anchor us when we see things happening in our lives, when we experience loss seemingly unexplainable, or the denials of, of life, the things that we'd like to have, that seem legitimate to have, yet seem denied us. And just looking at the battle of the ages and realizing if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in that battle. I want to end with a, another missionary who also served in South America, in Latin America, we'll say. Ronnie Bowers. Life, look, this is from Time Magazine. Sunday, April 29, 2001. Ron Bauer's life looked like something out of the Mosquito Coast. She and her family lived on a 55-foot houseboat with two bedrooms and a solar-powered refrigerator. They collected rainwater and tanks on the roof, which they filtered for drinking. For Ronnie, everyday worries included making sure her adopted son, Corey Seven, didn't fall into the sweeping undertow of the Brown River, the Amazon and also keeping her newly adopted baby charity safe from cholera and malaria. Uh, the desperation of the jungle is what drew these people there. Uh, ironically, the desperation of the jungle was what made the Bowers so eager to work there. In this spiritually dark corner of the world, as Jim Bowers described it in a recruitment video, many people have never seen a church. They go through life with no knowledge of the living God who created them. Asked Ronnie, can you imagine never having the chance to listen to a Bible story as a child? Says Sherry Boykin, who worked upriver from Ronnie, you have no idea what a wonderful thing it is to do. The people literally physically tug at us. Every ear held on to every word we say. In between humanitarian handouts, the Bowers spent most of their time trying to win converts. Jim, 37, ran Bible schools and played hymns on his guitar. Ronnie, 35, focused on the women and children in her first year. She struggled with Spanish, but soon Ronnie was creating coloring books in the different local dialects and laminating them against the humidity. Warmth radiated for Ronnie. Those who, who knew her say she didn't need the spotlight. She preferred to please people with an encouraging word or a home-cooked meal. She was a very down-to-earth person. She had suffered a severe miscarriage 10 weeks into a pregnancy. You may have noticed that I mentioned the two of the children who did have were adopted, which actually gave her a platform among the indigenous peoples there. The, the women there often lost their children at young ages. amazing woman, amazing woman, 
How many women would you talk to who would be willing to live in a situation like that, not just for a short time, for a two-year stint, but indefinitely? Man, once you get someone like that, you would say, man, it seemed like a good idea to protect them, keep any harm from coming from them. But during this time, CIA agents and the Peruvian Air Force were on the lookout for drug planes, planes that were smuggling drugs in and out of the country. Now, as you may know the story, there's a book about this. The plane that the Bowers were in was coming back from an errand. They were trying to get a visa for charity. The story is somewhat complicated as to what took place, but the outcome isn't complicated. The Peruvian jet dived in, opened fired. Bullet went right through Ronnie and into the skull of her child, Charity. The plane erupted into flames. The pilot who was injured in both legs managed to bring the plane down and land safely. Jim Bowers pulled his wife and daughter out of the wreckage. You look at that. And when, when, when I renewed my memory of that event, some of you read about it years ago, I just, it just hit me with new force. It's like, God, why would you let something like that happen? Why? Do you realize how hard it would be to replace someone like that? A woman with that kind of perseverance and faithfulness in, in the face of personal trials. <clears throat> and then I came to the end of the article in this Time magazine. I thought, as I started reading the sentence, <clears throat> Excuse me. The final paragraph says this. Despite the outrageousness of the killings, the missionaries have refused to place blame. Said Bowers at the memorial service for his wife and child, Corey and I are experiencing inexplicable peace right now. God gets people's attention with a crisis. This is the sentence that grabbed me. Since the deaths of the ABWE, since the deaths, the ABWE, the mission board, says interest in becoming a missionary has spiked. Good wins no ultimate victory except out of the grave. And in the big cosmic drama, in a world where it seems like God is fighting a losing battle, and we sometimes wonder where he is, you need to remember that no matter how dark things get, God is in control. And good will have the final say. The kingdoms of this world 
and of his Christ. Jesus will reign. Let's pray. Father, you reign supreme. You are the sovereign Lord, holy and true. sometimes question what we see. The appearances become so convincing that we may be on the losing side. Father, I pray that you will help us in our struggles with evil that come to us on a very personal level, that will come to us even as we leave this service tonight. Father, as we move into VBS, even workers now who are preparing for this doubtlessly have, have perhaps felt the tug, the burden, even the doubts. Father, these kinds of efforts are not met easily. There are frustrations. There are setbacks. There are things that seem to, to come up that it just seems so unreasonable. And then when we get children in here who hear the gospel, we know that for many of them, they, they will go back to homes where everything seems to be undone. We need to remember, Father, that you are on the throne. And good will have the upper hand. We know the outcome of the battle is yours, but it's easy to forget. Remind us, oh God, remind us. And Father, I pray for those who may have been listening to this sermon and do not know Jesus Christ in a personal, saving relationship. They would realize that this principle works for the Christian, not for the non-Christian. That all is lost outside of Christ, both in time and eternity. Oh God, I pray that you would draw them to the place of placing personal faith in Jesus for salvation. I ask this in Jesus' name.